This is the future of finance by Motive Labs. Hello, and welcome again to the future of finance, the podcast where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. I'm Sam, and I'm joined today by Natalie Sini. Welcome. Thanks, Sam. So I'll give a quick whiz through of your background, and then I'm keen to get stuck into some of the questions we've been prepping and talking about just in the warm-up. We've got a ton of exciting stuff to talk about. Natalie, your experience is predominantly in the financial services sector. You're the chair of Innovate Finance, the fintech membership body, but you also play a number of other roles in financial services. You're on the board of Countrywide PLC, which is the UK's largest mortgage broker, and you're also chairing an independent review into the future of cash, something we'll, uh, we'll definitely pick up on in a bit. Your executive career has been varied. You've included time at McKinsey as a strategy consultant. You were a member of the UK Executive Committee of HSBC, and you've had three CEO roles in your time, including the financial ombudsman just after the financial crisis, which must have been fascinating. And you were responsible for the crystallization of the PPI issue, and then playing a a critical role in managing the cleanup of that, which from memory, I think, cost the banks now over £4 billion. Over £47 billion. Over £47 billion. There we go. I'm rising. (laughs) Okay. Wow. That's a huge sum of money. With such an expansive career in, in financial services, perhaps you can tell our listeners how you've seen the landscape change. What have been some of the trends and the movements that you've observed? Yeah, thanks, Sam. And to give some context, I mean, you mentioned the financial ombudsman. My first big role in financial services was as chief exec of the financial ombudsman service just after the height of the financial crisis. And if you put that in context, banks were about the most hated organisations in the UK and we'd got some pretty big scandals. So at the point I joined the ombudsman, PPI was brewing as a scandal and the ombudsman's job was to clean up consumer issues where Mm -hmm. things had gone wrong. So it's fair to say for my first few years in financial services, I absolutely saw the worst of the sector. And almost by the nature of what I was doing, I saw an awful lot that had gone wrong, mis-selling to consumers and not an awful lot of customer focus. Mm -hmm. But of course, it wasn't just financial institutions who'd got things wrong. I think we, we look back and say the regulatory environment failed in many ways, not just for macroprudential reasons, but also in conduct terms. And what this whole scandal really exposed also was very poor financial literacy on the part of consumers in the UK, with most consumers not knowing when they've been sold something suitable or not, Mm -hmm. and not Mm -hmm. understanding what an APR was. So what's changed? Um, I mean, in some ways, an awful lot's changed. In some ways, not nearly enough has changed. So you look at the regulatory environment in the UK now, and everywhere I go internationally, people look at the UK as world leading. I think we've absolutely cleaned up our act in terms of prudential regulation. And on conduct, we're pretty forward looking. I mean, I think our conduct environment has led the way for us to become leader in fintech. Um, The growth of the fintech sector itself has been hugely powerful, not just in terms of developing really customer focused solutions, but also changing mindsets Mm -hmm. to make us think we can do things differently. We've got far more focus on culture and doing the right things for customers Mm -hmm. in the UK. But if I do some negatives, we're nowhere 
where we need to be on consumer financial literacy. Most people still don't understand anywhere near enough to plan for their future. And adoption rates of new technology and innovative products are still far, far too low. So most of the population are not benefiting yet from what we can do for them. Thank you. Look, it's great to hear someone as patriotic as I am confirming that we're a leader in fintech and the FCA and and similar bodies have done a fantastic job. One of the industry bodies that I know well has been and and is doing a great job, particularly, I think, across the full spectrum of stakeholders, which isn't an easy task, is Innovate Finance. You're the chair of Innovate Finance. Can you tell the listeners what Innovate Finance does? Yeah, and thanks, Sam. So everywhere you look, there's a huge focus on fintech at the moment, which is fantastic. And it's being embraced by every trade body, which is wonderful. But as you say, Innovate Finance plays a pretty unique role in that ecosystem. What we do, in a way, what's different about Innovate Finance is we pride ourselves on being the hub of the fintech ecosystem in the UK. So all the large banks are our members, including a lot of the asset managers and growing interest from insurance. But we've also got over 200 startups and growth fintechs as our members. We bring in VCs. We work with consultancies, closely with government. We work with the FCA as trusted advisors. And we liaise internationally to help build networks. And that's an ecosystem in the UK that Innovate Finance, which has now been in operation for four years, has helped create and nurtures. And it's an ecosystem that's pretty hard to access through other means. And what that means we can do is we can help our members scale and grow. And that's not just startups. That's also incumbents looking to change their business models, work more with fintechs, as well as help the small and the mid-tier firms scale up on their journey. It means we can help shape the policy environment because of that membership and that insight we have. And we've been working very hard with the government and regulators on issues around particularly talents and skills and capital, which we all know are utterly critical for fintech to survive. And we also act as a bit of a showcase for innovation in the UK and increasingly for UK consumers who are only just starting to understand what fintech can do. Yeah, I, I was speaking recently with a CEO of one of your, your member banks who positioned Innovate Finance independently as the industry champion for collaboration, which I think that's probably one of the ancillary benefits that you're not necessarily seeking to do, but it's just part of being part of a larger ecosystem and community. And I think it's become increasingly important. So when Innovate Finance was set up four years ago, we still had a large amount of fintech saying, hey, we're going to destroy the banks. I don't think that's the mood anymore. It hasn't been the mood for a couple of years. Collaboration is the theme. An awful lot of fintechs now see their model as B2B and supporting and collaborating the incumbents and, and vice versa. I mean, another good description of what we are actually is and I have a habit of asking our members at at events why they've joined Innovate Finance is a club you just need to be a member of if you're in fintech which I really like like that a lot yeah in fact actually you're uh, the chairperson before you Alistair always championed the phrase 10% of a big number is better than 100% of nothing and I think hearing that disruptive beat the banks narrative disappear has been a really positive thing for the industry Uh, absolutely agree Okay, so amongst all the things that you do, which is pretty impressive given how little time we tend to have as human beings, why did you choose to do the Innovate Finance role? It's a big, it's a big role. Well, I've spent most of my career looking at how we can do things better. So leading customer focused and tech driven innovation. And it's easy to see, and I think most of us have seen for years, just how much potential there is for financial services to do more for more people. 
And if you look at financial services across just about every point in the value chain, across banking, insurance, asset management, payments, there is so much potential to do better, enabled by technology. So that's really what excites me, and particularly the potential we have got to make a difference to people's needs. So if I go back to my financial ombudsman days, I saw just how poorly the financial system served quite a lot of people. And that's not necessarily because the incumbents were doing it badly, but just because of the business models. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. look how prohibitive financial advice is for so many people in the UK, or the fact that the poorer you are, the higher the interest rates you pay. I mean, there's, there's just some things that feel wrong about the way our current model works. And as our society is changing pretty fast, we're seeing new needs emerging. So fewer and fewer people are buying homes. Doesn't mean they don't need insurance. What do you do when you work in the gig economy? What what kind of financial products do you need? As we live longer, how are we going to make sure pensions build, but we move around more? So there are an awful lot of challenges. So what really excites me is the potential of fintech to make a difference. And Innovate Finance plays a pretty big role in this. So we recently partnered with the Treasury on government's rent recognition challenge. Brilliant initiative. Lots of people now leave university with huge debt. They rent. They can't build up the credit history that's going to get them on the property ladder. So we helped government set up a challenge and judged it to help spawn the the players who would develop the products so that people can count their rent to their credit history. I mean, there's fantastic innovation out there and we want to be a part of it. And we've got some members who are doing some amazing things. And I'm always loath to single out members, so I'll I'll give a few. But, you know, we've got organisations helping people on lower incomes get more affordable credit through employers. So Salary Finance and Neighbour are Mm -hmm. leaders in that and doing a fantastic job. We've got organisations like Scalable Capital and Nutmeg helping make investing far more accessible. Or Pocket, which is helping people who, without bank accounts, still live in a digital society. And there are many fintechs doing far more Mm -hmm. than that. So I'm really excited by the potential fintech to actually solve some real-world problems. Yeah, that undercurrent of social impact is something that, A, makes me very proud to be a part of the UK fintech ecosystem, but is also just super important. And I think the Rent Recognition Challenge, we had the Economic Secretary on the podcast recently who spoke so passionately about it. It's an incredible thing for the Treasury to get behind, to put £2 million of prize money behind, I probably shouldn't call it prize money, innovation capital behind an initiative that will make a difference to the public. You don't see that all around the world. While we're talking about the Economic Secretary and Treasury and the UK government, both of us probably get asked rather a lot about Brexit. We'll do one question on it (laughs) because, yeah, you can't switch on your TV without hearing about it. But what are you observing and what do you think it means for the fintech sector? Well, I suppose what's slightly depressing is we're now in October and we still don't actually know what Brexit means. And it feels like a bit of a long running soap opera, but one where nobody is enjoying watching it and half of us wish the series would be cancelled. So if I move to what it means for the fintech sector... At one level, it's going to mean very different things according to what business you're in. So if you're in international payments, some of the issues are quite profound and we still don't know the answers yet. And it's not a surprise that many fintechs are actively taking stakes in other European locations. Um, I mean, Revolut announced they were doing exactly that last week. But at a more macro level, there's some overall challenges that affect the whole sector. So what I find really sad is fintech is a UK success story. We lead the world. And... One of the reasons for this is some of the best talent across the globe has seen the UK as the best place to be. Mm -hmm. And that's because we've had an international outlook. We've had a brilliant culture of innovation in the UK. We've had an enabling regulatory environment that we've just talked about, world-leading financial services sector, and people who want to invest in that ecosystem. 
And initially after the, the Brexit vote, I think fintechs were hugely patient and sort of waited to see what they could do. But cracks are now really starting to appear. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest concerns I hear when I'm speaking to fintechs is around talent. So firms are now starting to hire abroad because they're not sure they can get the visas in the UK for the people they need to hire. And they're having advances made by European capitals that they will open the doors. And also in the meantime, the opportunity cost is huge. So other countries are getting their act together, while a lot of our governments and regulators are inevitably spending a lot of their time sidetracked onto Brexit, with billions of dollars being poured into fintech in Asia, in Europe and the US. So if the UK really wants to stay ahead, we really need to stop squabbling fast and just find a way ahead for UK. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And you talk about talent. There are a number of different initiatives going on, and, and one of my favourite ones is, is actually the Lord Mayor's, of which you've been a part of the City Number One group, yeah. that filters all the way down to City Number Three, and I, it's it's so important to look at it from top to bottom and how yeah. how the senior people of industry can help enable, educate, guide, and advise the younger people that are coming through the ranks, and particularly where diversity is concerned. What are the maybe one or two things you think that we could do as a nation, and not just in fintech but broadly, yeah. to continue to grow talent and attract talent? Well, the talent stats for fintech are actually really interesting. It's a geographically really diverse sector. So over 40% of people are working in the UK in fintech and non-UK nationals. And that's partly because the UK is a great place to work, but partly because this is a really scarce talent pool internationally. But we've also got some other challenges. The stats on women in fintech are actually not great. So just 29% of fintech employees in the UK are women. Uh, Senior levels, that's worse. Um, It goes down to 17%. And actually, when you look globally, sadly, the UK is actually better than most. I mean, this is a a global issue. So you asked for a few thoughts. I've got three, if I can, Sam. Yeah. So the first is we just urgently need to stop scoring own goals by scaring people away. So Innovative Finance has done quite a lot of work on talent. We put a submission into the Migration Advisory Committee ourselves. And we're really pleased that the Migration Advisory Committee have come up with a recommendation of just take the cap off off highly skilled talent. Absolutely right. We need the best people to still want the UK to be the place they, they come and work. But secondly, and I think everybody pretty much agrees with this, we do need to grow our own talent. We need to do far more about STEM education in the UK. But this isn't just about schools. As we all live longer and as careers change, we do need employers to do far more about training people, equipping people with skills as they go through their careers. And I know that the government apprenticeship scheme hasn't worked brilliantly, but let's see apprenticeship in a wider light and really think about how we can grow our own talent. But that's not going to be quick. And I think the third thing I'd say is we do need to be far more open to diverse talent and particularly gender. There have been some recent studies which are quite revealing and quite scary about VCs, for example, backing men over women with exactly the same pitch, despite the fact that actually, if you track the success rate post-pitch, female founders in fintechs will will actually often do better. And the nature of the fintech sector, particularly the startup end, means that some of the hygiene factors that many women look for early in their career, like maternity benefits, um, aren't always available. So we do need to be more open to diverse talent to help ourselves as well as keep attracting the best talent into the UK. All those points I violently agree with. And to actually pick up on the, on the middle one that you, you spoke about, employees equipping employees with the right skills. I, I won't go off on one now because I'll get on my soapbox, but the 
education system needs a dramatic overhaul, in my opinion. It needs to be far more vocational, and we need to start thinking about that much, much earlier in the cycle. I couldn't agree more. And, and if you talk to innovators about the skills we're going to need in the future, it's not rote knowledge. No. It's about abilities to think laterally. It's about creativity. It's about problem solving. And I do worry about the education system having moved far more back to rote learning in today's age. And, but, and, but let's not go there because no, my, my dad not, was a teacher, not. so I, I can... I I can talk for hours on the education it's system. It's going to be but, tough being a teacher yeah. nowadays because I think that, <laughs> yeah, that curriculum needs to absolutely. change every couple of years. You can't, can't wait 40 years like, we've, like we have been waiting. Talking about the future, perfect segue. You're currently leading a review of cash in society here in the UK at the moment. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about that and, and what fintech's role is in that evolution? It's a really fascinating review. So it's an independent review. We're looking at the implications of a potential cashless society. Will we be cashless in 15 years? And um, how do we stop people being left behind? Now, the fintech's role in this is really fascinating. I mean, on the one hand, it has been technology that's driving us towards more cashless ways of, of payment. So, I mean, contactless over the last couple of years has driven a massive shift. We've seen payment levels using cash come down from a decade ago, about 60% of transactions were in cash. Mm-hmm. Now it's about 30%. And some countries globally, I mean, Sweden, we're near, near 15%. So we've seen a really dramatic shift from cash to digital payment methods. But there's still quite a lot of people in the UK who really see cash as their main method of payment. If you extrapolate wider than than fintech, we've got some digital exclusion issues more generally in the UK. So we have still not got broadband or decent mobile coverage in large swathes of the UK. The shift in retail to paying online away from the high street, a lot of us are quite happy, but Actually, there's some people who are finding that quite hard. And in some way, fintech and and digital payments fits into exactly the same group. So I work in London. Most people I speak to hardly use cash. In London, I don't use cash. I live in rural Kent, where you couldn't survive without cash. So we are seeing big changes across different parts of of the economy. So the risk actually is that the revolution helps many, Mm. your classic 80-20 rule, but there are big segments of the population that could be left behind. We've all been teenagers once. That cash in hand thing is something that I hope uh, hope doesn't disappear too quickly. I don't even know if I'm allowed to say that. Probably not. No, but it actually, actually it's, a, it's a good point. Sir. I mean, estimates say about 14% of the economy is mm. the informal economy. Mm-hmm. And that's not all the illegal economy. It's the informal economy. So if you think about, for example, someone who's old and disabled who lives in their home but relies on carers to to look after them, a lot of which will be informal, Mm. might be neighbours, it might be relatives. It's a lot safer to give someone a £20 note to go and do your shopping than it is giving them your debit card. Yeah, yeah. Now, you can see that fintech solutions can help address that, but they're either not there yet in terms of their development or they're not as widely adopted. Okay. I'm going to give you, give you another example. Some of the main reasons people are giving us in the review for use of cash is around control. So if you're in the breadline, and that's one of the biggest indicators that you'll be cash dependent, if you've got 50 quid in your pocket, you can only spend 50 quid. Yeah. Um, whereas if you've got a card, you can go overdrawn. But actually, some fintechs are coming up with some fantastic ways of budgeting. I mean, Monzo have, have introduced budgeting pots but they've introduced them and they're not as widely adopted as as they could be. So there are potential controls. Mm -hmm. Mental health charities are telling us around actually the worry that if someone's in a mental health crisis, you can suddenly blow all your savings. Mm -hmm. But you can imagine AI technology that in the same way you pick up fraud behaviour could pick up overspending behaviour and say, actually, let's, let's protect you. So I can see fintech actually offering a lot of solutions to these problems. 
But it's not going to happen without a concerted effort and push, along with a lot of digital adoption issues. Well, hopefully some of the findings from your review will, uh, yeah, will, will encourage that kind of behaviour and innovation. Quick one on your predictions then. Are we going to go cashless or are we not going to go cashless? I don't think we're going to go cashless as soon as perhaps some people think. So if you look at Sweden, Sweden's around 15% of all transactions are today made by cash. But even they don't think they're going to be cashless in 15 years. Because what they're finding is that there's now a group of the population that are quite hard to reach with digital solutions. And in the UK, we actually haven't got some of the benefits that Sweden's got uh, in terms of they've got pretty universal digital access in terms of broadband and, and 3 and 4G networks. They don't have some of the concerns we've got about privacy. Mm. You know, um, mm. That's a big issue coming up in the UK. So I don't think we're going to be cashless soon. I think the challenge is going to be how we maintain the infrastructure we've got to, to allow a cash economy for those who need it at an affordable cost, because we're already seeing the infrastructure start to crank. What do you think are some of the biggest infrastructure risks, perhaps? One thing that's really surprised me in doing this review is actually how expensive the UK cash infrastructure is. So the estimates are between five and nine billion pounds a year to run the cash infrastructure. And that's everything from, you know, the printing of the notes to the distribution to um, bulk sorting centres through to running the ATM network and the cost of retailers in, in processing cash. So huge costs to run cash economy. And actually, a lot of that is pretty fixed cost. And as you'll know, a lot of that is financed by individual cash transactions. So if volumes halve, as they have done in the last decade, but costs are fixed, needless to say, it's going to creak. And the examples we've seen of of that system creaking, we've already seen it in ATMs. Pretty much every day you pick up the papers at the moment and hear about rural ATMs closing. We've already seen it with bank branches Mm -hmm. because completely understandably, commercial entities are making economically rational decisions on their segment of the value chain. But no one's really looking at the infrastructure as a whole. So, I mean, my my own view is we are going to have to keep a cash infrastructure running in 15 years because we're going to have 10 to 20% of the population dependent on it. But we can't do it as we're doing now. So we need to find some radical ways of taking cost out of that infrastructure. The Nordics have done some interesting things. So a couple of Nordic countries have moved away from seeing ATMs and branches as competitive advantage for banks, but instead said, actually, it's utility. Mm-hmm. And that allows you to remove duplication. Mm-hmm. And we've also got some yeah. great infrastructure in the UK in the form of the post office, of convenience stores, Absolutely. where actually, if we think about function, not form, so it's about helping people use cash as opposed to having an ATM network or having a branch network. Actually, I think we could remove some cost and duplication, which would allow us to sustain a cash infrastructure. So we're early days on, on the review. Our call for evidence only closed last week. We're yeah, not reporting yeah. till March. But there's some of the ideas that are coming up as we're looking internationally and yeah. we're hearing from people in their submissions. Super thought provoking. I've just yeah gone through a whole load of innovations that could never succeed, like print your own money at home. But um, yeah, anyway. <laughs> well, one, one, one example that was in a submission we received last week is actually what we can get foreign currency through the post, and yet we assume people have to get on a bus and go to an ATM to get to yeah, get UK yeah, currency. Yeah. You know, could Amazon deliver currency for us? So I mean, it, I think this is a moment actually to think laterally about. Maybe not a cash infrastructure, really, yeah. but but maybe not print your own. I think I think the Bank of England might have something to say about that. Yeah, no doubt. Natalie, thank you. Um, we always end with a couple of softer questions. So yeah, well, uh, let's dip into something outside of the fintech world. What are your passions outside work? Probably my biggest is cycling. So it's my version, my version of mindfulness. So the first thing I do on a weekend is is go out and do a very long cycle ride, um, which awesome. wipes 
all stress from my system. Yeah. It's addictive. It certainly is. That's how you stay looking so young. <laughs> Thank um, you. You live in London. In fact, yep. not too far from where we are now. Where, if you weren't living, and this is not a Brexit-related question, where, if you weren't living in the UK, would you live? The more I travel, the more I realise how great the UK is, and, and I love the UK. But if I had to go anywhere, I'd go to Australia, and I'd go and live in Sydney. And the weather is fantastic. I've never quite understood people who live in Australia coming over to emigrate and live in Britain, giving what they're giving up. Uh, you know, I just don't know. Maybe it's me being fiercely patriotic again. But every time I, I go away and, and travel and I come back to London, I realise how, how lucky we are. I agree. It's super functional. There's history, there's culture, diversity. It's, in my humble opinion, the best city on the planet. I agree. But, but I'm still going to Australia. And then the final question is, what is the best investment you never made? Sadly, it's a long list, but I'd have to go for Amazon. Yeah, yeah, that's I think that's uh, probably on everyone's list. Yeah, <laughs> Natalie, thank you. It's been such a pleasure, and uh, and to speak to someone who's got such a an impressive and varied CV is is a real honour. So thank you. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for your time and insights, and thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam. See you next time. The information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of motive partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of motive partners. Motive partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no obligation obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by motive partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry the economy, motive partners or motive partners investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.